Lord God Almighty, we do say to you today, God, that you are great. You are great, you are powerful, and you are good. We worship you this morning in spirit and in truth. And we do so only because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Welcome. This is the time I normally dismiss the children, but they get the privilege of staying in here with us. Yes, indeed. So uh, we're glad that they're here. We do this every so often. So as to remind the children of our families, I have two, that uh, we want them to watch mom and dad worship in service. And uh, sometimes we know that uh, children, oftentimes it's sometimes in some churches, it's the hour at which the family worships separately the whole morning. And occasionally we want them to come together. Also, just a brief announcement. Uh, Two, let me uh, just invite those of you that are interested in committing to this local church. You're a Christian uh, and you want to commit to this local church and membership. Uh, go ahead and put the, the, uh, the little device there at the bottom there, the bulletin. Just fill that out. Throw it in the basket as it will go by uh, as we will take up the offering later. You can put it in there. Well, this morning we are taking a look at the book of Ruth. If you've not already turned there in your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Uh, that is one of my, this book is one of my favorite books in all the Bible. So if you were to ask me, Nathan, if you had one book to preach from, if you could preach to the entire world, if you only had one, what would it be? I'd probably say John. (laughs) But my second book would be Ruth, would be the book of Ruth, because this four chapters is absolutely positively stunning, this story. So I want you to know from the very beginning, friends, this story is not, hear me, it's not about ultimately about you. Or about me. This story, you should know, is not a way, it's not a story as to a way in which you can find your Boaz, ladies. This is not what this book is about. Um, and even as the, the, the book is titled Ruth, uh, the book is not ultimately even about Ruth, though she is an absolutely amazing figure, an inspiring figure. We have much to learn from her. We have much to learn from Boaz and Naomi, as we see. That would be a fruitful study, but they are not ultimately what this book is about. This story in Ruth is about the faithfulness and the greatness of the one true and living God. That's what this book is about. The God who never leaves nor forsakes. The God who makes good on all of His promises, even or especially when all seems lost. The God who makes good on all of those promises. The God who can be trusted in the days of want and the days of plenty. The God who can use the most unexpected people and places to bring about His perfect plans of redemption and restoration. That is ultimately what this book is driving at. It is ultimately driving us to stare and to savor and to worship the God of glory and His work in the work of redemption. And so guys, just sit back with me as we just take a look at this amazing uh, story. Now I want you to know as we read through this, we're going to walk right through this book. I want you to know, guys, this story is so fantastical, you're going to be tempted to think it's sort of like a Disney story that's not really true. This happened. This happened. When you take a look at the genealogy, we know for sure that this happened. This is a real story where God is at work. Take a look at Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Stop right there. All kinds of stuff. I'm not going to do this the whole book. Don't worry. But there's all kinds of things going on just in those first few words. Two things let me pull out. One, right off the bat, 
Why are we preaching Ruth now? We just finished Judges. Well, you should now know, right? This story is happening. The setting of this story is in the midst of the time of the Judges. And what have we learned, church, over the past few months about the time of the Judges? It's a terrible time in the nation of Israel. Terrible time in the nation of Israel. It is absolutely awful. There's no king, and everybody's doing whatever the heck they wanted to do. No king, everybody's doing what they wanted. Israel compromised, they began to reflect the people around them. It resulted in absolute chaos. So, for instance, when we read things like we did a couple weeks ago in those dark chapters of 19 to 21 of Judges, surely some of you were asking, I know some of you were asking because you did ask me, where is God at in all of this? Is he not powerful enough to do anything about what's going on in that terrible story of Judges? Or worse, does God not even care? Where is he? Ever been so crowded in with darkness that you wondered if light even existed? Ever been in a, such a horrendous storm where you wondered where the Lord was at? Well, friends, Christians need more than the logical consistency of God when suffering comes in. Maybe some of you are in those dark hours now. And so I want you to hear as we take a look at this story. This story is here to tell us the God who is. The God who is. What He's like and where He is in times of pain and difficulty. You've got to understand this. Don't lose sight of this. The Bible, friends, is not put together like a newspaper. It is a carefully organized story in order to tell the story of redemption, the story of God and His redemption amongst His people. Therefore, Ruth, the book of Ruth, doesn't just follow the book of Judges because of chronology. It follows the book of Judges because of theology. It is intentionally placed here to answer those questions about God and His presence and activity amidst a nation in turmoil. It's meant to be a kind of zooming in on the few people in a tiny corner of Israel in the midst of this terrible chaos so that we might see the God who is and trust Him through the darkest of nights. We're going to see that. He can be trusted. That's why this book is placed here. It's in the time of the dark era of the judges. But the other thing to notice there in that very first verse is the presence of famine in the land. You catch that? Now, while we can't be sure, the Bible doesn't tell us, oftentimes, uh, at least it doesn't tell us in this passage, oftentimes we see famine as a sign of God's judgment on His people. And we see that there's a time of famine in the nation's history. And so this is to be expected, right? Because as we've seen in Judges, it's just an awful time. So we can expect some judgment to be had there. And so right off the bat, the book reflects this notion that God seems to be distant. The mood of the community here is dark and gloomy. There is no fruit in the fields. There's famine. And then things go from bad to worse. Look there again in verse 1, second half. There's a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Mahlon and Kilian died so that the women, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. 
Okay. So Elimelech has died. He takes what well, Elimelech actually takes his wife from the land of promise, from Israel, out. They leave the land of promise. They take their two kids. They leave the land of promise and they go out to the fields of Moab. So he leaves the place of the Lord's blessing and he goes into enemy territory, as it were. Moab, we know, is a descendant of the nation of uh, the person of Lot. These are the same guys that would not let Israel pass through when they were going up into the land. And so once again, them leaving the land is another ominous sign in the story. Verse 3, we see Elimelech dies. Verse 5, we see the two sons die, Kilian and Mahlon. And so now the wife, Naomi, she's now uh, in a pagan, foreign, enemy country alone. Sort of. As we see those husbands, they took Moabitess wives. Orpha and Ruth. They're with her. They both seem barren. These women both seem barren because they've been married now 10 years with no children. One can only begin to imagine the pain, the grief, and the suffering of Naomi. But light begins to break through the sky in verse 6. Just a little ray of light. Verse 6. Then she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and had given them food. So here we see the hand of God. She heard that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. Okay, so uh, perhaps this is during a time uh, of God's mercy when the land had rest. You guys remember that when we saw some of the, sometimes God would bring up good judges and then after that the land would have rest for some 40 years or so. So maybe this is happening about that time, maybe after Othniel, maybe after Ehud, one of those guys. So there seems to be some light coming in. God's bringing food and Naomi, having no reason to stay, every reason to return, decides to go back home. And so she and her two widowed daughters, they start to hike the dusty road back to Bethlehem. But look at verse 8. Naomi explains to these two grief and, to these uh, two grief-stricken ladies, there's really no reason for them to go back with her. And she says there in verse 8, take a look, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord, may Yahweh, deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And so, a couple of things that the author is going to track right here in these verses that we need to pay very close attention to. So like a movie that's developing a plot line, we need to stop and pay attention to a couple things in those verses, okay? So do you guys see that word kindly there in verse 8? See it there? You want to circle that verse. That's a major word. That verse kindly, that word kindly or kindness. That's a very important word in Scripture in general. But in this book specifically, it's the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed. It's a book, it's a word actually that is so rich and so beautiful that there's no single English word that can capture its amazing beauty. It's oftentimes translated the loving kindness of God, something like that in English Bibles. But it means the covenant loyal love of God. The covenant loyal love of God. This, was, this, this, this word has the richness of God's character wrapped up in the bedding of His promise to His people. And we're going to see that word is going to show up in pivotal places in the story. It's one of the themes of this book. Because remember, guys, don't forget this. This book is primarily about this God, the covenant loyal God. And so Naomi speaks it 
to these widowed, grief-stricken Moabitess women. She says, may, may God love you with his covenantal loyalty. That's what she says. But she also says something that introduces another team, uh, theme. You see it there in verse 9? It says there, right there in verse 9, uh, she, may you find rest in a husband. Well, there's another theme that's going to get developed as we go. So we're going to see these things play out in a major way. So sort of put that second aspect there, verse 9, put that as a placeholder in your mind, back into the story. You ready? Here we go. Naomi, so grief-stricken, she's doing what she thinks is best, probably a good idea, to go back home. Verses 11 down to 14, she explains how she has nothing for them. In particular, she explains, I've got no husband for you. She can't care for them. And to top it off, she says in verse 13, listen to this, another theme, it's no good for you to go with me. The hand of the Lord is against me. Ever felt that way? Ever felt Naomi like Naomi, the hand of the Lord was against you given all that was going on around you? Friends, this is why we need to know and pursue the God of the Bible in times of feasting. So that when famine comes, we will know that He is not against us. And we will know that He is for us. We've got to sweat in the training room of Bible, prayer, and community so that we will not bleed on the battlefield of life. We will not doubt Him when times of difficulty come. And guess what? They're coming. You've got to know and pursue Him so that when times of difficulty come, you will not doubt the goodness and the presence of God. Verse 14, Orpha takes Naomi up on the offer. She heads back home to the pagan fields of Moab. But we get a significant turn in the story. Verse 15. Take a look at this. Verse 15. This is Naomi speaking. And she said, so Orpha's sort of walking off. So you can imagine it in your mind. Orpha's back sort of to you. She's walking away. Naomi said, she said, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Note this language. And to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Amazing testimony. So picture this, guys. Put it all together. Dusty road, as it were, sort of on to Bethlehem. Tears streaming down their faces. Ruth rises, looks at Naomi in the face of, in her face, who's insisting her to go back to Moab. Ruth says back to her with great conviction, stop telling me to leave, Naomi. I'm going to go where you're going to go. I'm going to live where you're going to live. Israel and its people are now going to be my people. And now I'm going to take up. I'm going to lay hold of your God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob. Him, I'm going to take him. He's now going to be my God. I'm going to die where you're going to die. And Naomi, I can imagine, lays her head into the neck of Ruth and weeps. She understands. And as the seed fades back on that dusty road, we see two broken, widowed women embracing each other. And as we read the story, we're left in despair ourselves. In a lot of ways, Ruth reminds us of the Lord, doesn't she? How she remains faithful in the midst of death and dismay. But also, I think she, Ruth, expresses what it means to have true faith. 
You guys remember the words of Christ who said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his, his life for my sake will find it, Jesus says. And Jesus also says, and, in, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Guys, Ruth expresses this as clearly as anybody else in the entire Bible. She manifests the character of God to never give in when things get difficult. To love neighbor. But she also shows us what it's like to trust the Lord and to love the Lord and as our neighbor, as ourselves, through thick and through thin. To not love father, mother, brother, sister. To not love comfort, not love ease, not love familiarity more than anything else, but to love God and to serve Him no matter what. That's what true faith looks like. Brother, sister, pray that you would have faith like this woman. Pray that you would have faith to follow God like this woman. Well, Naomi and Ruth, they make it back to the city of Bethlehem. You can see that in the batter, back half of chapter 1. The whole town hears about their coming. And we find there that in verse 20, Naomi, whose name means pleasantness, still believing God is against her, she instructs people to now call her Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitter, she says. She maintains that God is against her. Then she says something Naomi does that the author is going to develop as well in verse 21. Take a look at that. She says, I went away full. She's explaining this to Bethlehem. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It goes on to say, and so Naomi returned And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So as we close this back half of chapter 1, sky, the sky has a few shades of light in the midst of its gray as we see that barley harvest there. I can imagine the camera kind of peering down from the sky into those barley fields, and we see the wind sort of blowing and those breeze, the barley sort of swaying in the breeze as chapter 1 comes to a close. There's been a great deal of emptiness up till now, but this harvest seems to be indicating life is coming. Chapter 2 opens up with some information from the storyteller, the narrator. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. Why is that there? Thanks for that. Well, you'll see as the story goes. Well, in chapter 2, verse uh, 2, we find that Ruth, amazing woman, she wakes up and goes to get to work to care for Naomi, just as she said she was going to. So she kind of works the fields there. Uh, We notice, look in verse 2, note she's still called, look at that, Ruth the Moabite. So the author is trying to put that up in front of you. You're going to see that's going to get developed as the story goes on. So she's out there working the fields as a foreigner. And because she was a foreigner working in the fields of Israel, based on Levitical law, that is, that's a law back early in the Old Testament, Ruth, as both a widow and a foreigner, was allowed to glean the edges of uh, the fields. So other people out there feed, uh, getting food, the, harvesting the crops there, she's allowed to uh, work those fields, kind of take whatever they leave over. And so we can imagine one morning, Ruth setting out, picking as she goes, gentle hand of God behind her, moving in her every step. And we read what I understand to be some kind of heartened, heightened uh, sarcasm in chapter 2, verse 3, when it says that Ruth happens 
upon the field of Boaz. So the Lord is continuing to move in the midst of the shadows of this story, friends, just as he does in our lives. This worthy man of the clan of Elimelech named Boaz, he shows up in verse four. And I think the first words out of his mouth are significant. What are they? They're of the Lord. Yahweh be with you is the first words out of Boaz's mouth. And in verses 5 to 7, we get this interaction between Boaz and the kind of overseer of the land. And he asks Boaz, or the Boaz asks his uh, sort of overseer guy, hey, who's that girl over there? And the overseer guy says back like, well, you know, she's Ruth. She's that Naomi. Remember that girl? She came in last week. Like, that's her. And man, she's been hard at it all day. So what's going to happen when they meet? Well, our ears are relieved when we Here, chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Right, we're coming out of a story where men don't exactly have the best reputation. And here's this vulnerable woman working in the fields. How's he going to react to her? Look at verse 8. He goes over to and says to Ruth, Boaz says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell at her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Note the emphasis there. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes of my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And so though Ruth is from an enemy foreign land, he's never met this woman. Boaz serves to make provision for this woman, to protect her, to overwhelm her with grace. And how does Ruth respond? She falls to the ground and says, what have I done that you should be so good to me as a foreign woman? And Boaz gives his answer. He, he heard about what she'd done. He admires this woman for her faith, for her character, for her loyalty. And Boaz even prays down a reward from the Lord for her actions. From verse 12, uh, we, the author would have us to understand that Boaz understands Ruth to have taken refuge under Yahweh's, under the Lord's wings. Don't miss that. The author wants us to know that Ruth is taken refuge under the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Under his wing. That's significant because it reveals to us even more that Ruth has not just taken faith in some God, but in this God. Ruth or Boaz understands that. And so Boaz, after having just after we have just read a litany of men who took advantage of women, it is instructive to us to find what it looks like for a man to honor a woman. and To protect her and to care for her. I think that is a beautiful device of God. To place again, Ruth, right after Judges. 
Ruth, overwhelmed by the grace of Boaz, notes his favor and kindness to her. Again, we see she recognizes she's an outsider there in verse 13. But as we are seeing, Ruth is going to slowly get ingrained into the life of God's people, into their story. She's sort of like yeast getting kneaded in. Well, the scene in the barley fields winds down as Boaz lavishes more and more grain on uh, uh, Ruth in verses 14 to 16 of chapter 2. Gives her a bunch of more food, right? So loaded down with all this grain, all this harvest, Ruth makes her way back home. I can imagine the sun sort of setting in the distance after a long work day. She comes home. I love this scene. Uh, she has, I can imagine her breaking into the door, bags of barley on her back. And as she busts through the door of her new home, maybe there sits Naomi, still embittered and maybe hungry. And she walks in. Naomi sees her and says, my goodness, where have you gotten all of this food? Where is all this happening? Where where did you get all this? Who who has shown favor to you? Verse 19, she says, Naomi does, where did you get all of this? My goodness, what happened? Who took notice of you? This is amazing. And I can imagine Ruth sort of not even being interrupted, sort of taking things down, setting it over here, setting it over there, and without skipping a beat, she says, oh, it's this guy named Boaz. And I can imagine at this point, Naomi stops what she's doing. Barley falls to the floor. And she says... Did you say Boaz? Ruth, yeah, yeah, Boaz. This guy, he's, he's a great guy. Look at verse 20. Chapter 2. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Life is springing back into the heart of Naomi. She prays a blessing on Boaz. She says that through him, the Lord has shown, there it is again, Hesed has shown kindness, has shown the covenant loyal love. Note what he says, she says, to the living and the dead. And Naomi concludes in her excitement, the Lord is showing covenant loyal love to everybody, to the living and the dead. Naomi concludes in her excitement, the Lord's doing all this, and he's doing all this by his providing a redeemer in Boaz who is going to be a blessing to the living and the dead. Now we've got to figure that out, right? How is he a blessing to the living and the dead? How is he the Hesed of God to them? Well, we're left to ask that question. What's she talking about here? Why is she so excited? What does this guy, redeemer, what does this Boaz guy as a redeemer have to do with God not forsaking the living of the dead? Well, here it goes. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 25 to 30. That law says, in essence, that if there is someone in your clan who dies, there was a responsibility of a redeemer to purchase back that property of the relative in order to redeem it and keep it in the clan. And then, one of the other assumptions of the law can be found in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. It's a notion called the Leverite marriage. The Leverite marriage that's found in that passage taught that if a man died without any sons, a relative would then marry the widow and have children with him so as to extend their name. Because right now, Elimelech's line is dead. That way, the family's name would not be wiped out. The line of Elimelech in this case would not be wiped out. And so Naomi saw in Boaz the hand of the Lord Because as a relative, he was a man that was able to redeem Ruth and by extension of her, Elimelech's name would not die out and they would be cared for. And 
Naomi's seeing all of this coming into play. Little does Naomi know the Lord has even more in store. Chapter 3 opens up there. This is Naomi's plan to have all these dominoes sort of go into effect, to kind of put all this in order that we just talked about. Now, Naomi sometimes gets ridiculed for manipulating the situation for her own gain. But friends, I don't see it that way, nor does Boaz see it that way. Right? God is sovereignly working through this story. He is providentially at work in this story. From the famine to the relief in Boaz to Ruth happening upon the field of Boaz, Naomi rightly sees all of this as evidence of the Lord's hesed, of his covenant loyal love being at work there. So Naomi is simply acting in concert with the Lord's word. That's her plan. She's acting in concert with the Lord's word. God is providentially moving and Naomi is working in concert to that providence through her obeying the Bible. The Lord is sovereign to move. We are responsible to act. Light has begun to show once again in Naomi's heart. She's trusting the Lord. She puts this plan in place for Ruth and and Boaz to get together. That's what's happening in those first five verses of chapter 3. Ruth, uh, what she's going to do is she's going to go down there and she's going to make a marriage proposition. So this whole Leverite marriage, this redemption can happen. So she heads down there. She goes down to the threshing floor. This is where uh, Boaz would have been beating out all that harvest that they got in to, to bring it in. Ruth goes down to the threshing floor. She does it in the cover of darkness. And Ruth is going to go make this marriage proposition to Boaz. Boaz has a couple drinks. I do not think he's drunk. He's merry, but I don't think he's drunk. God seems too quality a guy to be doing something foolish like that. So uh, he gets tired. He lays down. Presumably, he lays over some sort of covering over him to go to sleep. And Ruth slips in in the middle of the night as he goes to sleep. And she comes at his feet. And she takes that blanket, which presumably was on his feet, and she pulls it up over his feet. If you look there in verse 8 of chapter 3, that word startled means shivered. So in other words, he woke up, and that's what she was trying to do. He wakes up. Can you imagine being in this situation? All right. He wakes up, and there's some girl at his feet. Now remember, he already knows Ruth, but remember, dude's probably, you know, he's, he's had a maybe a glass of wine or two, it's dark, right? He's, he's tired, and he can't, in the darkness, he, he looks down there and says, who, who are you? And then in verse 9, we get this. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So basically, guys, Ruth offers a marriage proposal calling upon Boaz to be her redeemer. Notice those words, guys. Underline those words in verse 12. Sorry, verse 9. Notice those words. Spread your wings over your servant. you catch that? Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Look back at chapter 2, verse 12. Remember when Boaz meets Ruth and he prays a prayer of blessing over her and said uh, where he asked the Lord to repay uh, her for her taking refuge under the wings of the Lord? You see what Ruth is doing? She takes the words of Boaz and says back to him, be the answer to your prayer. Be the answer to your prayer, Boaz. Be the answer to the Lord. Be be God's wings to me. Be the manifestation of me taking refuge in the Lord to me. 
She borrows those same letters. Be the wings of God to me. You are a redeemer, she says. You can be the wings of the Lord to me. What's Boaz going to say? Guys, what would you say? Take a look at verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now that word, did you catch it? That word blessed came up again. That's the same word. That's hesed. That's the loving kindness. That's the covenant loyal love of God. May you be hesed. May, you, may the covenant loyal love of God be on you. Why, Boaz? Because she just didn't go out and marry anybody. She didn't even go back home to her other gods and her other people like Orpha did. No, this woman acted in true faith. She had the harder option and chose it for God and for neighbor. And we find Boaz agrees to go along with the plan. Yay, right? We're excited about this. We like Boaz. Boaz is amazing. But take a look at verse 12. I think the Lord, I could be totally wrong in this, but I think the Lord throws this in here just for fun. Verse 12, he tells him, yeah, I'm in, but there's another guy closer than me in line. Oh, oh, no, no. We wanted to be Boaz, right? If it's a movie, you're like, no, Boaz, we want it to be him. Verse 12, there's another. So we, now, we've got, now we've got all kinds of things happening, right? See, before we didn't have any husbands. Now we've got too many possible husbands, right? But Boaz is not going to delay. Gracious man that Boaz is. Awesome guys. First thing in the morning, I'm going to take care of this. All right? So listen, here we go. Press pause on the movie. All right, just press pause. Let's stop. Let's talk just for a second. Just, just a few of us. Let's talk for a second. We've got a lot of things we need to figure out here going into chapter 4. All right, a lot of questions that need to be answered. First off, will Naomi remain bitter and empty? We need to see if that's going to get developed in chapter 4. Secondly, will redemption come to Naomi and Ruth? Is that going to happen? Thirdly, if so, who's it going to come from? Boaz or Mr. So-and-so? Or fourthly, will Elimelech's line be extended? Or is it going to die out? Fifthly, what's going to be the legacy of this amazing woman, Ruth? This foreign Moabite woman. Sixth, what will come of God's people? Remember how this book started? There's no king. What's going to happen to them? And then lastly, seventhly, if this story is not ultimately about Ruth or Boaz, why is this book here and what does it tell us about God? Seven questions. And all of them are going to get answered. Chapter 4. Boaz gets up early. He goes to the first century Starbucks. All right. It's the gathering place, the town hall, as it were. All right. Shows up there. And guess who shows up? Guess who happens to show up? Mr. So-and-so, the guy earlier in line than Boaz. Boaz stops. He assembles a witness of ten elders. So now this sort of first century Starbucks has turned into a kind of courtroom. Chapter 4, verse 3, apparently Naomi had some land. Elimelech had some land. And Naomi had some land we didn't know about. And so Boaz makes the land available to this guy as a redeemer since he's the first in line. Honest guy, right? And shockingly, at the end of chapter, uh, at, the end of, at the end of verse 4, we read, 
Mr. So-and-so is going to take it. Uh, yes, that's right, Abby. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's the, like, no, no, we want Boaz, man. Why is, who's this guy? Well, Boaz responds in verse 5 of chapter 4. Take a look at this. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, which is what he just talked about, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Note this language. I would underline this. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So in other words, here we, what he's saying is, is part of this acquisition, as it were, a key part of this is to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. And so when Mr. So-and-so catches wind of that, he's like, I'm out. Yay, right? It's going to cost him probably too much to kind of take this girl on, have children, we'll have to provide for it. No, 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 I'm out, I'm out. You take it, he says. You take it in verse 6. And so the right of redemption now finally falls to Boaz. Yes, right? Okay, but I want you to listen, guys. Listen not only how, but why Boaz redeems. Look at verse 9. Why he redeems. Chapter 4, verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilian and to Mahlam. Remember, that's his sons who died. Verse 10. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlam, I have bought to be my wife to, circle, perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That, circle, the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses this day. So there's an emphasis on the perpetuation of the name. So twice now, We've seen this whole story of Boaz as the Redeemer has at its heart the perpetuation of the name of the dead. So there's the Hesed, the covenant loyal love with a Redeemer to perpetuate the name of the dead. You can preach the rest of this story. I would hope Christians in the room. Look at verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Sorry, excuse me. I'm in verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord, may the Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. Those are the wives of Jacob. May her like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. So Ruth is cast within the great matriarchs of the Israelite women. They say, may the Lord make the woman like eight Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Look at verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You guys catching this? So blessings are heaped on Ruth in such a way as to invite her to bring her into the narrative of the great matriarchs of Israel. I mean, my goodness, how we have seen this story move, right? It started out with a woman, a Moabite woman that has no children, is apparently barren, who has no husband. Now she keeps being referred to as a foreigner. Now suddenly this woman is going to be one of the great matriarchs of Israel. Did it come true? 
Was the line extended? Is there abundance? And what does it say about God? And what does it say about God in the midst of suffering? We'll take a look at verse 13, chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. And the Lord gave. You want to put a big circle around there. How did this happen? The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Ha! How about that? The Lord moved in Boaz and Ruth to conceive a child, a son. And just as he does in the other matriarchs of the faith, the woman now attending to Ruth and Naomi, they rejoice. And so do we, right? We rejoice. The line's going to continue. There's going to be life among the dead. The name is going to advance. And that's not all. Look what they say about this little baby boy. And I want you to notice it's going to be really careful. You're You're going to get confused and think that they're talking about Boaz. They're talking about the boy that's been born. Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you, this one that's been born, He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, yes she has, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to Him. That is the Redeemer, the Restore. The one they're referring to now is the Redeemer and the Restore. So may His name be renowned in Israel. And we're left to ask the question, my goodness, who is this boy that's been born? What a story. Who is this? Well, the name of that special little miracle baby born to Ruth and Boaz was a guy by the name of Obed. And look what comes next in verse 17. He, Obed was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. David, of course, the greatest king in the history of Israel. Looking for a mic drop moment? Here it is. This is amazing. The whole time we've been reading this story, these random people, these random events, and we've been reading the whole time about the great-grandparents of King David. That miracle, that little, and by the way, verses 18 to 22, that genealogy, that's sort of a, that's a, that's a uh, kind of birth certificate to show this is real. And that little miracle baby boy born to a formerly barren, widowed, pagan woman was none other than the grandfather of the greatest king in the history of God's people, which means Ruth was the great grandmother of King David. Again, what's the setting of this book? Go back and look at it. First line of the book. No king in Israel. If you're living at those times, you're wondering where God's at. Everything seems dark and everything seems to be in dismay. Where is God? Everything seems lost. Nothing is happening. And this book is written to say God's at work when it doesn't even seem like it. He is bringing the greatest king of all in Israel's history before before Jesus comes. But there's even more. Flip over to Matthew chapter 1. So like, we could stop right there. That would be an amazing story. But look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to give you a second to get there. Guess who was the mother of Boaz? What does it say? Verse 5. Rahab. 
Now, some of you that aren't familiar with the Bible are like, who's that? Well, let me tell you about Rahab. Rahab is a girl that is a prostitute in Jericho. When God's people are originally coming into the land, and she's saved because she cares for God's people, and she apparently trusts in the Lord. So Boaz's mom was a prostitute from yet another foreign land, an enemy people. And as, as if all of that wasn't enough, you remember Ruth's great-grandson's David's wife? Remember who she was? Look at verse 6 of Matthew chapter 1. This is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, who gives birth to who? Solomon. The wisest man in the history of the world. And so friends, if you don't know the rest of this story, the story that Matthew is telling us, let me tell it to you now. God would go on to make a covenant with Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson, King David. It's in the very next book, by the way. Again, order is important. In the very next book of Samuel, you can read about that covenant that God made with uh, Boaz and uh, Ruth's grandson. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David that he would sit on a throne and then in his name, in his people, among his people, from his lineage would be a king that would rule forever. And take a look there at Matthew chapter 1 again. Verse 5, Boaz came by Rahab. Boaz and Ruth gave Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David. David is the father of Solomon. Slide down to verse 16 of Matthew 1. The line goes to Joseph, who was the father of the adopted son, Jesus. Who was called the Christ, the King of kings, the forever king. The answer to the promise given to Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson, David. So guys, let me pull back up the lens here. What began with the story of the dark time of Judges, a time when there was no king, and everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. There was this story of a man that was living in a time of famine, presumably Judgment of God on the land. Elimelech, whose line was dead. Whose line was dead. Through the son of a foreign prostitute and an otherwise barren Moabitess woman, God brought light out of darkness. He brought life out of death. He brought joy out of sorrow. He brought hope out of hopelessness. And He did it how? Through a Redeemer. Through a Redeemer, a Redeemer who would pave the way for another Redeemer, the greater Redeemer, who would also be born in Bethlehem. Same city. The greater King, the forever King, Christ the Lord. When the whole world was dark and seemingly without hope, just as Naomi was, empty from the most unlikely people, from the most unlikely of places, when all seemed lost, when all seemed dead, God brought life through a Redeemer. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing today. Jesus Christ, that great, 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 great grandson of Ruth and Boaz, lived the perfect life that David and even Ruth and Boaz did not live. As the great king, he was similar to Ruth and Rahab in that he was regular. We had a picture of him and his disciples. We wouldn't have been able to tell the difference. And he was from a tiny little town called Nazareth. A town, by the way, that most everybody said there's nothing good came from. 
And he changed the world through his sending of this son who was fully God and fully man. And he was the greater redeemer, the greater redeemer, the one that could redeem humanity from their captivity to sin. Where our death, our death, we could not perpetuate the name of God because of our sin. God sent his son to redeem us in the person and the work of Christ on the cross. And in his resurrection, there came life out of dead places. After those three days when dead and darkness was reigning, Christ rose up when nobody was expecting it, even though they should have been. They rose up and those that repent and believe on Jesus Christ, the great, great grandson of Rahab, and uh, David and all these guys, this guy, you trust him, you trust his work, you can find redemption. You can have a king. And you can live in a kingdom that's right. It's full of hope and love and kindness of God. Redemption. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we need? And that's what God provides in the greater Boaz, Jesus, the king who reigns the answer to the Davidic covenant. And so while, friends, we are tempted to draw a hundred conclusions from this amazing story, we can draw a hundred conclusions from Ruth and from Boaz. I want to leave us gazing upon this God. This God. Because remember, He's the one who ultimately this story is about. The God that never gives up on His promises. Look at Him. Worship Him. The God that is loyal to His people even though they are so often not loyal to Him. Look at the God who ne- whose love never fails. The God who uses forgotten people from foreign places in order to accomplish His forever glory. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi. The God of Josh and the God of Isabel and the God of Jeremy and Michael. That God. This God. The God who is and forever will be. The God of whom the angels speak of now and sing to now as we speak. The God that made the heavens, the mountains, the rivers, and the oceans. The God that made every creeping thing. The God that sustains the world by the word of His power. The God of Mongolia. The God of uh, Venezuela. The God of America. The God of Algeria. The God of you name it. Argentina. All these countries. God is the God over all of these things. The earth is His and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and he has established it upon the rivers. The Lord of hosts, the king of glory. This God, worship him, enjoy him forever. Especially in the midst of darkness and dismay. You can trust him. You can trust him. This story teaches us that. That God, when the midst of shadows and darkness, when we wonder where he is, he's there in the shadows. He's there. He's there. He's moving peoples and places in concert with his will. And they oftentimes come from the most unexpected places by the most unexpected people. And the most unexpected time. He is at work. We can trust this God. We can trust him. And I know what some of you are saying. But Nathan, life is hard. It's hard to trust him. I know. I understand. I prayed with a brother this week, a pastor who buried an 11-year-old girl. Life is hard. Children starve. Stray bullets find innocent parties. Racism runs rampant. Natural disasters wreak havoc. Women are abused. I can't explain these things in any kind of detail. But I can't explain the most important reality of the world. That God is real. And He has sent a Redeemer. And He is redeeming the world for His glory and for our good. 
I can explain that these light momentary afflictions are preparing God's people for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And I know some of you are saying, Nathan, light momentary affliction doesn't seem so light momentary. I know. I know. We have to learn, though, beloved, to look not at the things that are seen, but we have to learn to look at the things that are unseen. The things that we see are transient, but the things that are unseen, they are eternal. While our earthly home may be destroyed, we have a building from this God, the God of Ruth. While our earthly home may be destroyed, we have a building that God is building from this God, the God of Ruth, the God of Boaz, the God that brings life out of dead places when nobody is expecting it from people we don't expect it to come from. This God, we have a building from Him. And this building that God is making in us was not made with hands. It is an eternal home built from the eternal hands of our gracious Master, Jesus Christ, our King and our Redeemer. It's from Him. Jesus tells us, doesn't He? Doesn't He tell us, I go to prepare a place for you that where you may be, I may be with you. And until He comes again, or until we go to meet Him, He has given us His Spirit as a guarantee. And so what of that? So we can always be of good courage when things are hard. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, as Scripture says, we are away from the physical presence of the Lord. So be of good courage. As we are away from the body, we will be in the presence of the Lord. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. The new has come. And all this is from God that is perpetuating a name from we, through we dead people for His glory and our good. He's perpetuating a name through us, who through Christ, he is reconciling the world to himself. And so therefore, Christian, he has given you and he's given me the ministry of reconciliation to expose the world to these eternal unseen things that people in the midst of difficulty and dismay can know there is redemption, there is restoration. So that's to say, in Christ, God is reconciling this broken, desolate world to himself as he entrusts to us the ministry of reconciliation to those that believe. Therefore, we who believe, we are ambassadors. Think about that much. Second, Second Corinthians 5. We are His ambassadors. Ambassadors of what? Ambassadors of Christ. Ambassadors of the heavenly city, of the heavenly country. We are His ambassadors. God is making His appeal of redemption and restoration to dead blessings for the perpetuation of the glory of His name through me and through you, Christian. As we speak of Him in the midst of darkness. And so if you do not yet believe, friend, if you're here today and you do not yet believe in this God and you feel like Naomi, bitter, empty, you believe that God is against you. Death and dismay are surrounding you. Listen to me. If that's you, I want you to listen. Look at me. God is making His appeal of redemption by His grace right now through me to you. If I'm reading the Bible right, which I understand myself to be, that as insofar as I'm preaching this faithfully, I am an ambassador of Christ and I am preaching His Gospel in this moment and we are the ministry of reconciliation to those that would believe, then friend, if you are not trusting in Christ and you need redemption, right now I've come from the heavenly city and I'm here to talk to you. I'm a fool. Don't trust me. I mean, I get all kinds of things wrong. But I have seen the glory of God in Christ Jesus in His Gospel. I've seen it. And it's real. 
Because the God of this story is real. And you can trust Him. And He will give you life in dead places. It doesn't mean that it will be easy, but it will be good. And you will have that home of which you are hoping for that we can never seem to find here on earth. The greater Boaz, friend, has come. He is your Redeemer. He can give life to your dead places. He can fill you up and give you hope. The hope of salvation from the sin that separated from you, from you and God and the hope of heaven. The world you so desperately are trying to find. And so, friend, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Him. Like Ruth, leave your native land, leave your other idols, throw yourself under the wings of God and make His people your people as you trust this God to be your God. Trust in the Redeemer as Ruth did. Pursue the Redeemer, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and follow Him. So as I close, I want to leave you, beloved, if you are trusting in Christ with these words. I want to remind you And appeal to you to say the words that Ruth did. Back to God. Say to your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, your people Jesus will be my people. Your Father Jesus will be my Father. As you died on the cross, Jesus, so may I die to myself and live for you. By the Lord's grace, beloved, resolve in your heart to do as Ruth did and be determined to go with Jesus no matter where He may lead you. Blessed be the Lord who has not left us this day without a Redeemer, without His covenant loyal love. May worship Him and enjoy Him with Ruth and the others forever. Let's pray. We rejoice. You are the great Redeemer, Jesus. And You are reconciling this world, this broken world, our broken lives through Your Son. You're reconciling the world through Your church, Your people. And for those that do not yet believe, may they believe as Ruth did and throw themselves under the wings of the Lord. And may we, Your people, be like Boaz in that we are the answer to those prayers and we help them as we all make our way to heaven where we will see our King, our great Redeemer, face to face. Thank You, God, that You have sent Him and that He is coming. For all the dead places that are here now, life will come soon enough. May we trust Him until He comes. In Jesus' name, Amen.